Well, last week we started our study on Psalm 86, and we were able to make it through verse 6. And all the things we know about this psalm, we know it's a psalm of David, and we know it was a psalm of him going through some kind of hardship, uh, possibly from people. Verse 14 says something about people giving him a hard time. But it doesn't really go into any specifics about what is exactly happening in his life, and we don't really know. And we can extrapolate from that. We can assume that whatever it was, we can apply to our life as well. And one of the main points we made last week was at verse 4, when David says this, he says, Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And we said that David was asking for God to fill him with joy, even before the answer to his prayer came. And we believe that God wants us to have joy in our lives where we are, not waiting for something to happen. If we wait for something to happen before we actually have joy in our life, then we're going to miss out on what God is doing at this particular moment. Now we're going to pick up at verse 7. It says, In the day of my trouble I will call to you, for you will answer me. Now that's a pretty confident statement. I'm going to call God, and you, you're, going to an, you're going to answer. It wasn't a question. There wasn't any doubt attached to the sentence. It's a definite that when he calls upon God, God is going to answer. How many of you are that confident that God's going to answer? Now, we know it in our head, but how often do we really have the confidence that God is going to answer? We may think it here, and sometimes we are good at believing that God is going to answer for somebody else, but maybe not for me at this particular moment. David has really good confidence that God is going to answer, and why does he have that confidence? The next part, the next verse says this, it says, among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. Well, the first reason that David has confidence is because he knows God's word. That's where you get your most confidence from, knowing what God's word says, the truth of God's word, how it is applicable to your life, why it means and says what it does. Without that knowledge, it's basically hearsay. You're believing something because somebody told you rather than knowing it from God's word for yourself. And what he's doing, is he, he's repeating what he had already learned, because this is actually a reference to Exodus 15, 11. So we knew God's word, Exodus 15, 11 says the same thing. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Knowing God's word is paramount to having confidence in what God is going to do. One of the reasons I'm, I'm such a big advocate of this is because if we have a misunderstanding of God's word, then we're going to expect things from God that God never said he was going to do, and we're not going to expect things from God that he actually said he was going to do. And when these things either do or don't happen, we get discouraged because we have a misunderstanding of God's word. David was confident because he knew what God's word says. You know, it's one thing to be told by a teacher or a parent or a preacher that something is true. But it's quite another to study and search it out for yourself because that's where your knowledge comes from. It's not just hearsay, it's not someone telling you, you have the confidence of doing it yourself. I'm helping my grandson with some of his math. How many enjoy math? You can bring this down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, math is the devil's work. And I remember when I was going through high, or junior high, 
I just couldn't get it. It just wasn't clicking, and, and no matter what you said to me, it doesn't, didn't click. I could repeat it, I can do it, I can memorize a particular problem, but I didn't know the theory behind it. And I remember going, I had a tutor at that particular moment, it was a friend of my dad's who was a teacher, and he was telling me, he was training me in algebra, what we were going through. And all of a sudden, it was like a light bulb went off in my head, and I understood the theory behind the problem. Rather than just knowing how to do a particular problem because I memorized it, I now understood the theory. And now I was able, it just clicked off, I knew it. Not because, I mean it was partly because someone had taught me, but because I now understood it in my head and in my heart. And that's the same way God's word is. You can memorize scripture, but unless you apply it to your life and really know it for truth, for yourself, it's not gonna really click. You may memorize one particular thing or think that God's gonna work in a particular way because that's how you've seen it or that's how you were told, but until you know it for yourself because you've studied it and you know it, it's never gonna have the same effect. David was confident because he knew what God's word says. Now the second thing is he's acknowledging that God is not only the God of, the truth, of his word, but he also says that it's his experience with God's word that helps. Two things to note here. It's useless to cry to a God that can't hear you. How many have tried that? Before you became a Christian, you prayed and you tried, you didn't quite get it. When people pray to false gods, they are clearly wasting their time. When people pray for saints or two saints, they're wasting their time. The Bible clearly says that when we pray, we pray to God through Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.5 says, or 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. David is acknowledging that God is the only true God and that anything else that props itself up as a God is fake, is false. How many are afraid when you hear other people praying things that you know aren't true? It's maybe, I'll give you an example. If you watch the news, you'll see people in other countries praying to a different God than us. You ever get worried about that? You shouldn't because they're praying to nothing. It's an idol or a stone or whatever it is. David's saying God is the only God that has the ability to answer. Who among, you, who among the gods, little g, is like you, God? You are the only one who is majestic and powerful and glorious. You are the only one who can work wonders. When we pray, we not only know God's word, but we are confident in the fact that God is the God who can work wonders. If we begin to believe that prayer doesn't work, then we're going to stop praying. If we believe that our prayers don't go any farther than the ceiling and that God doesn't hear us and God's not able to answer what's going to happen, you're going to quit praying. David wants to make the statement that, God, you are the God who answers prayer. Your word is true. I believe it. It may not happen in my timing, but I know that you are the God who can do it. David personally experienced this power that he knew from God's word during his exile. When he was exiled, he was exiled for 10 years when uh, his son was trying to get him. 10 years he was in the desert. 
How many of you journal? How many of you keep a journal? I used to, not anymore. But a journal is a great thing because you get to write down all the times that God has really done something in your life. Because as time goes on, we forget about all the answers to prayer that we see. When we journal, you're able to look back at every single time that God intervened and remember it. David was able to remember the times that God blessed him in the desert. He blessed him when he was in the caves. He took care of him. He had experience to back up what God's word says. And sometimes our natural tendency is to forget those things. And we forget how God did this at this particular point. Sadly, I don't remember every time God intervened. I try to remember it, and I try to bring it back to my, to my mind when I'm praying for other things because the Bible says, I'm the God, I'm the Lord, I change not. If God did it here, he doesn't change, he can do it here. And if we forget those things and we forget how God's word says that he's the true, God, he doesn't change and he answers prayer, if we don't believe that and we don't look back on our lives to look where God did, then we're going to forget to pray and we're not going to want to pray. And Joshua, when they crossed over the Red Sea, God had them bring stones out, make a, a memorial on the shore. And what he said was, every time your children see this memorial, you tell them what God did. And sometimes we need to have those type of memorials in our life. All those things that God did, keep track of those. So that when the next hardship comes up, the same God that did it here is able to do it again. Our faith that God answers will diminish if we don't remember the things that God has already done. David not only knew what God's word says about the majesty and power of God, he experienced it personally. Now notice the order that he gave. First, he knew God's word. And second, he backed it up with experience. It doesn't go the other way around. You don't match your experience to God's word. You match God's word to your experience. Because how many know you can experience a lot of things? that may not necessarily be what God's doing. So every experience you have that you know or you think is God working has to be backed up with scripture, has to be in God's word. Otherwise, you might wanna take a second glance at what you think God's doing. It's God's word first, then experience second. Verse nine says, all the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Now, a couple of things about this verse. First, it's a continuation of how he acknowledges the greatness of God, how good God is. There's none like him. Because what? All the nations, everything was created by God. Colossians 1.16 says, Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see. Kings, kingdoms, rulers, and authority. Everything has been created through him and for him. Now, just a little side note, in my Bible here, I, I don't know if you have a beat up Bible like mine, but I got a bunch of highlights and underlines in it. If you're looking for scriptures that show the deity of Christ, this is one of them. If the Bible says Jesus created everything, everything, that means he did not create himself. He was the one who was creator. And if he created everything, that means he did not have a beginning. He is eternal. 
He always was. So this is a little deity scripture you can make a note in your Bible. There's a few of them you can go back and forth. When people ask you where the Bible says that Jesus is God, this is one of those scriptures. So, next thing. He cre- everything that Jesus created is going to one day come and bow down before God. How many know that? Whether they believe in Jesus or not, they are going to bow down. And David knew that there would be a time when this would happen. And when does it happen? It happens at the end, right? Revelation 15, 4. It says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous deeds have been revealed. Now looking at these couple of verses, and he's the creator of all things. People, the entire world is going to one day worship him. He is awesome in majesty and glory. And if he is this powerful, and everything that can be done, God can do. The Bible says nothing is too hard for God. If he is this powerful, do we think that our prayers, the little prayers that we have, are too hard for God to do? How many of you ever thought that your life situation is just so hard that nothing can change it? The Bible says there's nothing too hard for God. What impossible thing are you believing God for? Anything. I thought about that for a moment. And what's the most impossible thing for man to accomplish? What do you think? The most impossible thing for man to accomplish is salvation. In three of the Gospels, Jesus says this about salvation. In Luke 18, 27, what is impossible from a human perspective is possible with God. People coming to know Jesus, the Bible says, in the natural, is impossible. The Bible says that no one comes to God unless the Spirit of God draws him. When someone gets saved, it is a bona fide act of God working in someone's life. How many of you have friends who are not Christian? Family. And you look at their life and you think, there is no way that that person is ever going to come to Christ. They're just too hard-headed. I know them. They're just never going to do it. Guess what? Nothing is too hard for God. The God that is all-powerful, created everything, he can change them. And I think most of us here have experienced that same change. We're going to look at this story for a real quick moment. You remember the story where they had some, this uh, guy was paralyzed. He had some friends bring him to Jesus when he was going to heal him. Couldn't get to him, so they lowered him through a roof. So it picks up in Luke 5, 20. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, He said, friends, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take up, tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, 
took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave, glory to, uh, gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. What was Jesus telling them there? He was telling them that healing someone is easier than forgiving sin. He did the hardest thing first by saving the guy, forgiving his sins. Healing someone was easy in comparison to getting the person saved. What have you been praying for? What have you been spending maybe weeks, months, years praying for? Who have you been praying for? Nothing is too hard for God to accomplish. God is powerful enough to do what we feel is impossible. Whether it's for our own personal life, someone we know who needs Christ, provision, a job. What are you asking God for that you think is just impossible in the natural? The Bible says that God is powerful enough to do the things that we think are impossible and may be impossible in and of ourselves. Verse 10 says, For you are great and you do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. How many of you repeat yourself when you pray? David's repeating himself when he's already acknowledged. We, when we worship and we pray, a lot of times it's repetition. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. The saying repetition is the mother of learning, right? When we continue to repeat what we already know, it continues to sear it in our hearts so we believe it. Now David goes on and focus on not just what's going on around him, now he focuses on his own walk in verse 11. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. What's David saying? He's saying, Lord, after you answer this prayer, which I know that you're going to do, make sure that I don't want to walk away. Keep up my relationship with you after the prayer has been answered. He doesn't want to fall away as soon as God meets his current need. How many of us know people that a hard time comes up? They start praying real hard. God meets the need, and they kind of forget God. Israel did that every time. And sometimes we get really spiritual when we have a hard and pressed need. And then as soon as that need is met, take a breather and we kind of back off and we're not as fervent with God anymore and we're not praying as hard anymore because needs been met I'm good and David's saying Lord don't let me do that after you answer my prayer continue to give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name Lord after you bless me continue to teach me continue to let me know your truth and continue to let me have an undivided heart. And let me have the fear of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we're afraid of God. The Bible actually talks about fear as reverential trust. 
Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. We need to revere God and trust Him in all areas. When we do that, now we have the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. Babies, toddlers, when they're that age, they have no reason not to trust their parents, people they've been around a lot. But how many have seen toddlers or little babies when they go to someone they don't know? We say they're strange. They're getting funny, right? Because they instantly are afraid of someone they don't know. But they're not afraid of their parents and the people that are always around them. That's where David says, Lord, I want to be like that. I want to have that trust and I want to have that relationship with you that I am not fearful of you, but I want to keep close to you and I trust you in every area. Our trust in what God will do should overcome our fear of what might happen. David wanted that part of himself to grow. And verse 12 says, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Knowing that you hear me, knowing that you answer me, and knowing that you're powerful enough to do anything that seems impossible to me, I'm going to praise you because of who you are. I'm going to glorify your name with all my heart because I know that you are the God of the universe. Have you ever just worshipped God for who he is? Not because you need something or want something or even want your relationship with him to grow. You simply worship him for who he is. The Bible says God is worthy of worship. If God never does anything for you in your life, he's still worthy of worship because he's the God of the universe. But the great thing is he wants the relationship with you. You know, it's easy to go through the motions. It's easy to come to church it's easy to do the things that we do as Christians, but do you really have a relationship? That's what it's about. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Tons of people go to church every Sunday who don't have the relationship. They have it because maybe their parents had it or their grandparents had it or somebody in their life, but they don't have that, they don't have that energy. They don't have that drive. David wants to always have that. And because I trust in your perfect goodness, Lord, David saying, I will, not, I will not take the time to worry and fret about what's happening right now. I'm going to spend that time worshiping you. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to stress out about it. In fact, I'm going to worship you because I know you're able to take care of it. And the Bible says us worrying about situation doesn't change it at all. It simply wastes our time and takes our attention away from God. And even before I see the answer to this prayer or this need David saying, I'm still going to praise you. Before you answer me, before you heal me, or whatever the problem was for David, before you do that, I'm still going to worship you. This kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. How many, is, how many of us wait for something, a response to prayer, before we're able to have joy? before we're able to move forward, or before we're able to praise God? Do we come to church with the attitude, you know, I can't praise God until X happens to me. Until God does this for me, I really don't feel like I'm in a mood to worship. The Bible says we are supposed to worship, especially in those times, 
Because rather than focusing on what we don't have, we focus on the God who's able to provide what we need. Hebrews 13, 15 says, therefore, there, uh, through Jesus, therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. David is praying, praising God without his needs being met at this particular moment. To offer a sacrifice of praise is to choose to believe that in spite of circumstances, God is still good and God is still worthy of praise. Verse 13 says, For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. Now this psalm was written after David's problem with Bathsheba and Uriah. And David had been, you know, Nathan the prophet confronted him. He busted him. He, he confessed up. He prayed to God. Psalm 51 is about David asking God to forgive him. So David now knows how much God forgave him. Think about what David did. Had an affair with one of his good friends. He was one, Uriah was one of his mighty men. Had an affair with Uriah's wife. Kills Uriah. And God forgives him. So he understands God's love for him. He understands how God, verse, says, verse 13 says, you deliver me, deliver, delivered me from the depths of the grave. He knew what his punishment was going to be had he not repented. Psalm 51.11 says this, Do not cast me from your presence. This is David's prayer of repentance when he gets busted by Nathan the prophet. He understood how God's love for him saved him for, from such a vile act that he did. We sang the song, How Great Is Your Love, God. How great is the God that God forgave him of that horrible thing? We look at it in the natural, just in the natural, that's a terrible thing that he did. But what does David say in Psalm 51? Against you only have I sinned, Lord. So David realized that when he sins, it wasn't against other people. It was directly against God. And yet God was able to challenge him on it and David got saved and forgiven for it. Every one of us is or was or will be in the same boat as David. Our, our sins deserve the same punishment. What's the punishment for sin? To be away from God's presence, right? Hell is actually a place away from God's presence. There's a saying that says, for those who believe, earth as we know it now is the closest we're going to get to hell. For those who don't believe, earth is the closest we're going to get to heaven. We're not kept out of heaven because of things we do or don't do. There's one thing that keeps us out of God's presence, and that is unbelief in Christ We've used the analogy before of a free gift. Suppose this Bible, I wrap this Bible up and it says it's a, it's a gift. It's for you. And it's all wrapped up nice and pretty and sitting here. You can believe that Bible's sitting there. Absolutely, I believe 100%. But if you walk out without taking this Bible, this Bible does you no good. 
you did not receive the gift that was offered to you. And so when you leave, you do not receive the benefits of the gift. Jesus says that salvation is a free gift. It's a free gift. But you have to appropriate it to yourself before it actually does anything for you. And simply said, we've said this on Wednesday night, we're studying this on Wednesday night about uh, talking to people about Jesus. The default position of humanity is hell. How many understand that? The Bible calls it original or sin nature. Other people call it original sin. But we've all sinned. The Bible says we've all sinned. So therefore, our default position that where we're going to go when we die is actually hell. The only way to change that course is to accept the gift of salvation through Christ. So if you don't do anything, you're automatically going to go to hell. But Jesus says, hey, I came to spare you from that. And it's easy. Here's how you do it. Y'all are sinners. Y'all fall short of God's glory. None of you are going to make it on your own. So I'm going to send in a sacrifice for you. Jesus is going to take your place. He's going to suffer everything that you should suffer because you're sinners, but he's going to suffer it. And all you have to do is believe it. Not just here, but here. If we go to a court and the judge finds you guilty of something and your penalty is jail, no way to get out of it. Suppose someone walks in and says, you know what, I'll do their time for them. I don't, they're friends of mine, I'll do their time for them. And so you, the guilty one, you're, you're out, you're free. And suppose you meet the family of this gentleman or whoever goes to jail in your place, and you say to them, how did you get out of jail? I thought you were guilty. And you say to them, you know what, the judge realized that I was a pretty good person by nature and that I didn't do as many bad things as he thought and that's the reason I'm free. When in reality, the only reason you're free is because someone else is doing your time for you. When we think we're good enough and that our good works are what gets us into heaven rather than Christ's sacrifice, we're doing the same thing. We're thinking that we did it ourselves. When in reality, as David declared here, Lord, you've done everything for me. Your salvation is because you are awesome and great and you've provided it for me. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment? The ultimate goal of every Christian should be to bring as many people with him as possible. We should have that sense of urgency. We should have that sense of, I need, I need to say something. In the Bible, Jesus healed and raised up a daughter of a gentleman 
And Jesus said to him, I don't want you to tell anybody about it. And the gentleman says, I got to tell somebody. I have to tell somebody what Jesus did for me. That's how our hearts should be. That I have to tell someone what Jesus did for me. Maybe you're here this morning and this is your very first time. Or maybe you've been in this church for quite a number of years. But the question is still the same. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Church attendance does not mean you have a relationship with Christ. Doing good things does not mean you have a relationship with Christ. A relationship is basically where you acknowledge that there is nothing that's good in you and that Christ came to forgive you of all of that to make your life white as snow, the Bible says. Every sin forgiven, the Bible said that God chooses to forget all of your sin and you start out clean, righteous in God's sight. The Bible says that Jesus stands at the door of your heart and he knocks, but you have to open the door. If you're here and you feel that knocking on your door, you feel that tug in your heart that you know that God is drawing you in. That's the Bible says no one comes to God unless God's spirit draws him. And that simply means if you're thinking about God, it's because God is making you think about God. And it's no accident that you're here. You're here because God has a plan for your life. He wants to deliver you from where you are and bring you into a relationship with him. If that's you and you want that relationship, I want you to raise your hand right now. All right, I'm gonna assume that all of us are committed followers of Christ. Father, we thank you this morning that you are the God of the universe. You're the all-powerful creator of everything. And whatever need or burden is upon our hearts is no problem for you to address. We look back in our lives, I'm sure each one of us here can look back, Lord, and see things that you have done miraculously in our lives. And we can attribute them to the power and the glory and the goodness of God. So Lord, knowing all these great things you've done for us, we are trusting you for the things that we have need of now. And we are trusting you for the things that we have need of in the future. And specifically, Lord, we lift up all the people in our sphere of influence, whether it's our family, our friends, all the people that we know and we love and we care for who don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would touch their hearts and their minds, that you would draw them in by your spirit, that you'd remove the blinders from their eyes, allow them to see the truth of the gospel. Whatever it takes, Lord, I pray that you would bring them in and allow them to begin that relationship with you, with their sins forgiven, bound for heaven, free from the judgment to come. 
Father, we love you. We're, we're so appreciative and we are so excited for what you're going to do. You are a great God. You're a great God. Fill us, Lord. Use us. Allow us to be what you've called us to be. Witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And Father, we know that you will go before us to make every crooked way straight. So we trust our lives to you and we commit them to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Are you excited for what God's going to do? Are you excited to be here in God's house? I should say in the platform. Have a tremendous week. We will see you Wednesday night and next Sunday.